Welcome to Lecture 3 in this podcast series on the trial of Jesus Christ, the preliminary hearing. In Lecture 2, we left off at the Garden of Gethsemane. We understood who was there, not likely any Romans, and we understood why they were there. In this Lecture 3, we'll talk about the Sanhedrin, what it was, how it came about, what we know, or what we don't know about its procedures. But we'll also talk about the detour Jesus made along the way there to a preliminary hearing before Annas, and what was going on in the courtyard below. These details help us unpack the overall trial of Jesus. We need to take a pause in the action and talk about the Sanhedrin, because what it was and what it was not is something absolutely critical to the trial process here, and it's not without its own drama and interest. The term Sanhedrin is not a Hebrew term. It's a Greek term, Sanhedrin, and it means, literally, quote, sitting together, or, by extension, an assembly or council. Don't you think it's odd that Jews would use a Greek term to describe their own legal tribunal? I do. And you'll find that the reasons why they did so explain quite a bit about the backdrop to the trial of Jesus. Let's just review the basic timeline, and part of this we've already been over before. This time we start with Moses. Moses leads God's people out of Egypt and into the Sinai Desert, where they wander around for 40 years. But they do plenty more than wander. They begin to unify themselves as a people, and they do so through law. Moses is their lawgiver, and giving laws is only one part of the experience. Laws have to be applied to specific situations, and somebody or some group needs to be the one deciding whether the laws are properly applied to specific situations. If the law says that the worship of a Canaanite god is forbidden, as it says, then somebody or some group needs to decide whether, in fact, someone was worshiping a Canaanite god. That's why our own origin of the word law is found in the Old English lagu, which was from the Old Norse log, which means something laid down or fixed, like a ruler. The law is like a ruler. It's laid down aside something, as it were, and measures whether that thing matches up or comes short. God's laws, Moses' laws, serve the same purpose. And so Moses needed help in deciding how the law should be applied. It actually started a little more frantic than that, because he was at wit's end in trying to handle the complaints of the people who were tired of eating manna and wanted meat. Quote, I cannot carry all these people by myself, said Moses. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me, if I have found favor in your eyes, and do not let me face my own ruin. End quote. Just go ahead and kill me, says Moses, who says there's no humor in the Bible. The Lord said to Moses, quote, Bring me seventy of Israel's elders, who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting, that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take some of the power of the Spirit that is on you and put it on them. They will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. End quote. Thus began this general assembly. Seventy elders of Israel plus one, Moses. After his death, the assembly retained the same feature, seventy members plus the high priest, and continued in an unbroken line by replacement of members all through the time of Joshua Through the time of Judges, the Israelite elders, the prophets, and to the time of King David, when he established Jerusalem in about 1000 BC. The assembly seems to have disappeared during the Babylonian exile, but then reappeared about in 537 BC when the Jews returned to Jerusalem. But a couple of centuries later, some conquering leader took that part of the world by storm, Alexander the Great. He conquered the East in 330 BC and with it, the Jewish rule. But while importing Greek concepts and terms along the way, including the term Sanhedrin, which as I said, means sitting together or assembly. There are some authorities who say that this Greek term is itself borrowed from Hebrew terms with the S-I-N referring to the Torah that was received at Mount Sinai, together with the word Hadrin, meaning glorification, to express the great court's role the glorification of God's Torah through its application. Another possibility is it's from a combination of two words to mean 
Sonim harat panim biadin, which in its wonderfully lyrical way means, quote, foes or opposing litigants give respect and honor to its judgment. So you can see even names keep scholars busy. But this great assembly continued to meet and it continued to exercise authority over Jewish law all through the Maccabean revolt in 167 BC, through the Hasmonean dynasty in 140 BC, through the Roman general Pompey's conquering of Jerusalem in 63 BC, through Julius Caesar's recognition of ethnarchs in 47 BC, up to, and you guessed it, through the time of our friend Herod the Great. Here in the good old United States of America, we have a system of checks and balances. Our Supreme Court is the highest legal authority, but it's checked by the president, who makes appointments to it. When Herod was king, he was the highest legal authority and the effective Supreme Court of the Jewish people. It had no check because it was subject to him. We don't really have any specific examples of any veto authority Herod exercised over the Sanhedrin, but Josephus gives a fine example of how we might have expected him to exercise veto authority if he wanted to. During the construction of the temple, Herod thought it'd be nice to place a huge Roman eagle at the main entrance to the temple. The Jews, of course, saw this as a sacrilege, and a group of Torah students promptly smashed the emblem of idolatry and oppression. Herod didn't like that. He had them hunted down, dragged in chains to his residence in Jericho, and then burned them alive. He then made sure that problems like this would never happen again. So he put to death 46 leading members of the Sanhedrin and appointed his own high priest to preside over it. So, during the time of Herod, was the Sanhedrin subject to Herod's authority? I'd say we'd have to say yes. So when Herod died, we'd have to think that some kind of precedent had been set that would make his successor have superiority over the Sanhedrin. I'm sure that's what Herod's son, Archelaus, thought when he took over. Actually, Herod had three sons who took over his kingdom after his death, and that's what makes this whole story so doggone interesting, at least to me. You see, Herod the Great had three sons. I like to think of them as Herod the Lessers, because they were not quite chips off the old man's block. Herod Archelaus got the southern reach of the kingdom, which included Judea, Samaria, and Eudemea. You can imagine how much he enjoyed that, because his realm included Jerusalem and his dad's great palace there. He thought he could, and should, flex little muscle there, rough people up and the like, be an oppressor. Hey, all you have to do is act like an ogre once in a while, like Dad did, and people will give me what I want. Actually, people thought of him as a boob, and so they complained to Augustus Caesar about him. Caesar sacked him and banished him to Gaul. Yes, Gaul, modern-day France. Augustus had plenty of experience with what happens with idle former rulers when they remain in the neighborhood. Maybe settling him along the Riviera might keep him there. There was another son, Herod Philip, and his kingdom was way out of the way in the territories northeast of Galilee, where the Golan Heights are, and east of there. He was no threat, and he was a nobody. But the third son is more familiar to us, and more interesting. He was the youngest and cleverest son. He's the one that Jesus meets up with later. He's the one who saw a belly dance, and so lost his head over it that he took John the Baptist instead. He was ethnarch of Galilee, and a place across the Jordan River called Perea. He kept a house in Jerusalem and hoping, hoping that he could convince the Romans that he was not like his stupid brother and would really make a most ex excellent ethnarch there. Yes, he would. Pretty please. So after Herod Archelaus got sacked, who was ethnarch over Jerusalem? No one. Let me repeat, no one. Caesar gave jurisdiction to a guy named Quirinius, who was in charge of Syria in the north. You remember Quirinius. He was the census taker that forced Joseph and Mary to go to Bethlehem a few years earlier. But here's the most important thing about this event that must by now having you wondering when the heck I'm going to get back to the Sanhedrin, much less to the trial of Jesus. Are you ready? The Sanhedrin now is subject to no king. Subject to no king. It doesn't have to report to or justify any action it takes, except, as we'll see, death. It was the highest legal authority for both criminal and civil authority in all of Judea. It was the sole and highest seat of power in all of Judea. Well, at least it was as to all Jews. Judea was, of course, subject to Roman rule, 
and that presented, well, difficulties. Rome had what were called civita libere, or free states, where cities were self-governing and could elect their own magistrates. Jerusalem and Judea were not these. They were in what was called a subject territory, meaning the Romans could interfere whenever they wished in legislation, administration, or government. They tended not to do that because their main interest was in promoting free trade and the expansion of the empire. But they could, if they wanted to, usurp all local authority, and the fact that they could do so was enough to rankle the Jews greatly because God had given this land to them to govern and not to the Romans, damn it. But in spite of their stark cultural differences, the Jews had remarkably good standing with Rome. The Jews in Alexandria and Asia Minor actually had autonomous jurisdiction. In 5049 BC, Caesar gave Jews jurisdiction even over Jewish Romans. He exempted Jews in Asia Minor from military service and granted the same privilege to Jews in Palestine. They even exempted them from any duty to worship the emperor. Not even Christians got that exemption, as history would unfold in just a few decades. Remember, Romans were smart. They wanted trade. They wanted cooperation. They weren't there to crush the locals. But here's one thing the Jews couldn't do. They couldn't execute anyone. That was called the Jus Gladii, or the right of the sword. And that right was reserved to Rome itself. That means the Sanhedrin had no power to put anyone to death. Makes sense, right? The Romans didn't want any of the locals killing off any of the locals because they might find those locals useful to them. We kill, they said, not you. There are several good examples reflecting this arrangement. In the Acts of the Apostles, the tribune stopped the proceedings against Paul and sent him to the procurator Felix, who never returned him to the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin, which was bent on executing him. Acts chapter 25 recounts how the procurator Festus refused to turn Paul over to the Sanhedrin too. James, the brother of Jesus, whom we Catholics would say is more accurately described as the cousin or possibly stepbrother of Jesus, did not enjoy such luck. In 62 AD, he was delivered to the Sanhedrin, who had him stoned to death. But what happened afterwards proves the point of jurisdiction. Jewish citizens complained that the high priest who supervised this, Annas II, exceeded the scope of his authority. Agrippa II, who was now duly appointed king then, agreed and removed him from office. That account is from Josephus, who tells another story that same year, 62 AD, of a certain Jesus son of Ananias, who started crying in the temple about the doom of Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders wanted him killed. They flogged him and turned him over to the procurator Albinus, who to their frustration, let him go. And so now, I hope you can see why all this was important for Jesus' trial and why it created such drama here. The Sanhedrin was the highest legal authority over the Jews. It reported to no king. Its leaders wanted to kill Jesus, but they didn't have the legal authority to do so. They had to get Rome involved. But how could they get Rome involved in religious matters? Rome didn't care about local tribal religions. So what to do, what to do? We've got to stop this guy. We want him dead, not just hard and feathered, as it were. Let's see, let's see. And this is exactly why Jesus faced two trials, two very different trials, one before the Sanhedrin and another before Rome's duly appointed ruler, Pontius Pilate. So where did the Sanhedrin usually meet at the time of Jesus' trial? You'd think we know. We don't. According to the Mishnah, it met in the inner hall of the temple, something called the Hewn Stone Wall. Josephus calls it the meeting place and the town hall. There are a couple of references to it in the Acts of the Apostles, chapters 22 and 23, and it's described as low line, and it describes, quote, going down to the Sanhedrin, which is strange because the temple was up high. In any case, if the Sanhedrin met in the temple areas, they couldn't meet at night because the temple was closed at night, except at midnight on the Pasch, in which case maybe they could have met there and chose not to meet there, or not. See why it's a mess? The Talmud says the Sanhedrin left the temple area 40 years before the destruction of the temple and moved to a place called Market Halls. But we don't know where that was either. Undo the math. What's 40 years before 70 AD? Yes, 30 AD, 
And as we'll see later, there are two contenders for the date of Jesus' trial, 30 AD or 33 AD. There's some evidence that market halls could either have been on the Temple Mount or on the Mount of Olives. This seems to be the place where the Sanhedrin met at the time of the Acts of the Apostles because its description of who attended the Sanhedrin then included people who would not have otherwise been allowed inside the temple. Thankfully, we do know where Jesus' trial was. Matthew tells it it was, quote, in the house of the high priest, and that the Sanhedrin met there two days before to decide his arrest. Why they met there instead of their usual location has led to lots of speculation. Does this prove they usually met in the temple area because they were meeting at night? Was somebody doing some rehab there at the time that kept them from meeting there? The painters weren't done yet? No one knows. But this much seems a little clearer. We know where the house of the high priest used to stand in Jerusalem. Historians seem agreed about that. There's a church over the site now. It's in the southwest corner of the old city, and it's just a stone's throw from the traditional site of the Last Supper. Imagine what a wasteful walk, all the way to the Gethsemane and all the way back for this trial. For Jesus, it was about a two and a half mile round trip. The last half, I'm sure, was not the same as the first half. John is the only one who tells us that they first led Jesus to Annas, quote, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, end quote. Why Annas? Was he in charge of local bookings? Was he some arraignment officer? No. Annas Ben Seth was the top dog of top dogs. And we need to unpack some facts about him. We can start with that curious description of Caiaphas being, quote, high priest that year. You see, once a high priest, always a high priest, at least in terms of title. We follow that custom for judges. When a judge retires from the bench and goes off into private practice or off to Tahiti, the judge is forever known by the title of judge. There was only one high priest at a time, but there were plenty of former high priests still around. Annas was one of them. Remember, I said lots of things had changed in that Second Temple period, especially after the time of Roman rule and the reign of Herod. Remember when we talked about Herod's son, Archelaus, and how he biffed up the rule there and was banished? One of the things that Archelaus lost with that banishment was the power to appoint the high priest. That was something good old dad got to do, and he appointed about six of them during his reign. And if the high priest didn't do what good old dad wanted him to do, then he would get the axe, pretty much literally. When Archelaus was banished in 6 AD, and his territory was added under that fellow Corinius, the ruler of Syria, who liked taking census of his people, Corinius was the one who got the right to appoint the high priest. And in 6 AD, Corinius appointed Annas, or Ananias, son of Seth, as he's also known as high priest. He was one of the most powerful personalities among the priestly aristocracy. His contemporaries called him a lucky man. He was fabulously rich, having made his wealth off temple concessions. Whether you were there to buy an ox for the safety of Caesar, or two small doves as the Holy Family did when they presented the baby Jesus to the temple, Annas got a cut in the action. It was not seen as something scandalous either. The high priest was always supposed to be wealthy. He was expected to be the superior to all other priests in physique, in wisdom, in dignity, and in material wealth. If he was poor, his brother priests contributed to make him rich. He was required to be mindful of his honor, mind you. He might not mingle with the common people nor permit himself to be seen disrobed or in a public bath. Annas was only 26 when he was appointed high priest, which was relatively young and inexperienced considering that a Levite typically entered the priesthood at age 30. He wasn't absurdly young. Herod had appointed the 18-year-old Aristobulus as high priest just 42 years before. The age wasn't fixed under the law, but rabbinical tradition said entry-level age should be 20. With Annas's position came all the magnificence and pageantry of life as he got to wear the richest and holiest of embroidered vestments, serve in the temple, and preside over that most glorious day of the year when all the eyes of the Jewish world were on him, on the Feast of Atonement, which is familiar to us as Yom Kippur, and where he and he alone was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies in the temple to make atonement for his house and for the people.
It took a week to consecrate him as he underwent the rites stipulated in Exodus and Leviticus, which included purification, sacrificial offerings, the filling of the hands, and the smearing with blood. After he became high priest, he had to maintain ritual purity. He could have no contact with the dead. He could not even mourn for them or show the usual signs of messing up your hair or tearing your clothes. He couldn't have any defect or disability, like being blind or lame or disfigured or deformed or have a crippled foot or hand or be a hunchback or dwarf or have any eye defect or festering or running sores or damaged testicles. These are all in Leviticus chapter 21. And if you think these rules are strange or silly, then you have no appreciation whatsoever for what God is trying to tell them and us today. And I in particular love them. I am the Lord your God and I am holy and you need these rules to remind you of what you keep forgetting. You could see why ambitious people would do anything to become high priest. Later, you'd find that you could pay off the Roman prefect to become one. And the Romans soon realized they could make quite a profit by turning around the office more quickly to other contenders. Annas lasted 10 years in office until the Roman procurator Valerius Gratus removed him from office in the year 15 AD. Three years later, he succeeded in getting his son-in-law appointed high priest, Joseph Caiaphas, who had married his daughter. Caiaphas, as we'll see, enjoyed a long tenure as high priest, and then after him, all five of Annas's sons and one grandson eventually became high priests. One of them, who was named after him, Annas II, was high priest from 62 to 65 AD and was the one who had James, the first bishop of Jerusalem, beheaded. Annas II got his comeuppance a year later in 66 AD. He was assassinated by radical Jews for having advocated peace with the Romans. While Annas was considered a lucky man, his clan was not viewed favorably in Jewish tradition. It was noted for an addiction to intriguing, denouncing others, and making mischief. But Annas and his clan stood at the top of that heap for over 50 years. Money buys power, and Annas had loads of buying power. When you know these details about Annas, I want you to think of him in a whole new light when you think of Jesus standing before him. There's not a lot of art depicting Jesus before Annas, and what I've seen of it is bad. You typically see some old wizened figure with some scrawny finger pointing at a patient-looking Jesus. I want you to banish that image from your mind. Instead, I want you to think of that iconic opening scene from The Godfather, where people come in one at a time and pay homage to Marlon Brando's character. You see the fear in their eyes, the stature in his, the august power he resonates with so few words as everyone in the room knows they are standing before someone with power to favor or power to destroy. That's Annas. When you think of Annas, I want you to think of the Godfather, because that's what he really was. A guy sitting there with a big fat pinky ring and saying with a bunch of thugs around him with stone faces and folded arms, quote, so I've been hearing all kinds of things about you. Jesus was brought to Annas not because of his title, but because of his stature. Annas was cunning, intimidating. Perhaps he'd extract some concessions from the young rabbi. Maybe he was curious, too, wondering how this rabbi could have such a following and without any formal training for it. And maybe he really had some past history with him. Annas would have been high priest when only just a couple of years before his removal, a 12-year-old boy from the village of Nazareth up north who'd been down with his family for Passover week stuck around for three days and hung around the temple acting as if he owned the place and began questioning the leaders who were there, as Luke recorded, astounded at him. Was Annas there? If he wasn't, do you think word got round to him about this event? Do you think he may have wanted to keep an eye on this kid over the years? Do you think he remembered this kid some 21 years later when Annas was now in his 50s looking at this grown man and a young rabbi who was now brought before him for questioning? At any rate, taking Jesus to Annas bought time for the Sanhedrin to convene, spread the word, get people there, even though late at night now. This was Jesus' preliminary hearing, as it were. The chance for him to make some statements, make a plea, ask for mercy, cut a deal, Challenge jurisdiction. 
ask for bail, I don't know. Whatever it was, it wasn't likely to be good for him, and any admissions would be duly noted on the record. Anything he said can and would be used against him. Talking to cops when you're the suspect is always a bad idea. As my criminal attorney friends always say, just don't do it. Jesus' attorney, if he would have had any then, would have told him the same thing. Annas' interrogation is straightforward. Quote, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine, end quote, John says. It's an interesting way of putting it. We don't quite know Annas' motives here, although one would be foolish to assume they were innocent. Was Annas asking Jesus questions because he was interested in getting answers? More likely, he was like Stalin, who when advised he should beware of the Pope's reaction to his taking over Europe, said, The Pope? How many divisions does he have? How many followers did Jesus have? Could they create a problem if they were, say, armed? Who was that guy in the garden with a sword, after all? And what about his doctrine? Is he making a play for my power game here? Could the Romans take offense at what he's saying and use that as a weapon against me and the rest of us? Hmm. Need to get to the bottom of some of this. But Jesus doesn't answer his questions. His reply is bold, even shocking. Quote, I have always spoken publicly to the world. I've always taught in a synagogue or in the temple area where all the Jews gather, and in secret, I've said nothing. Why ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said, end quote. Smart ass, Annas must have thought. When you're brought before the high priest and accused of any offense, you're expected to assume a posture of utter servility, to exaggerate your humility and fear, would behoove you to appear disheveled, wearing black. Josephus says that anyone appearing before the Sanhedrin for trial should assume a humble and assumed manner of one who is fearful and seeks mercy. I am so, so sorry to have troubled you about this, your most esteemed highnesses. I've been nothing but a wreck since this whole matter came about. So after Jesus gives this response, the servant smacks him in the face and said to him, Is that any way to answer the high priest? Well... No, it was not. And the servant wasn't without some cause. The Torah says, at Exodus chapter 23, quote, You will not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And the servant heard Jesus to be finding fault with the high priest for asking a thoughtless question. You may recall that Paul, too, got smacked for his answers to a different high priest, Ananias, during his trial before the Sanhedrin. Paul's exchange is a little more detailed. Paul had looked at the Sanhedrin and had said, quote, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the account says at chapter 23, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Nice scene, right? High priest turns to a thug and says, Go smack his mouth. You gotta love Paul's pluck afterwards. Quote, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Paul was, shall we say, a little more human than Jesus was. And Jesus was, shall we say, a little more divine than Paul was in his response. He said, quote, If I've spoken wrongly, bear witness to the wrong. But if I've spoken rightly, why do you strike me? Annas was no fool. He must have realized at this point that he wasn't going to get anything out of him. This guy would not be intimidated. Of course, you have to wonder, was Annas just a wee little intimidated instead? All it says is that he tied him up and sent him to Caiaphas. Yes, tied up. As John says, he sent him, quote, bound to Caiaphas. Why did he tie him up? He didn't have any followers with him. They were in close quarters. A mob of servants was all around. How could the prisoner bolt? The Godfather has this one guy tied up just to go to the other side of the building? You a little nervous there, Annas? Oh, just a precaution, huh? You heard that thing about Malchus. Yeah, spooky, wasn't it? At this point, the Sanhedrin is now likely assembled, and they're gathering in the room on the opposite side of the same large house. That was the style of large Mediterranean houses then. They were rectangular, with a courtyard in the center would allow for a large room to be on each end and smaller rooms along the sides. We don't know for certain that Caiaphas's house had this layout, 
But historians seem okay with that as plausible, especially given the storyline here. A preliminary hearing before Annas, servants and attendants in the courtyard gossiping, warming themselves by a fire, and members of the Sanhedrin scurrying to assemble in another room. It would be complicated and risky if they were doing this in separate locations. So this is the scene then, which becomes a major focus of attention in the gospel stories, not because it's related to the trial, because it's related to Peter. Remember, a mob showed up at Gethsemane, and a mob brought Jesus to Annas. Do you think that after the mob dropped him off, they all dispersed and said, well, it's time to get a little shut-eye? No, they were ready for the late show, and the late, late show. And for them, this was showtime, baby. So they hung around the courtyard, regaled themselves with stories about their exploits, bet each other on what was going to happen, talked about those crazy Galileans, talked about the moon, talked about the cold, sipped spice wine, and edged themselves toward the fire when they could. It must have been packed, because Peter thought he could sneak in there and not be noticed. Actually, it was John who snuck him in, because John knew one of the servants there and was known to the high priest. Pretty bold when you think about it or pretty desperate. Peter had just drawn a sword on one of them within the last hour or so, and he had to think that someone might recognize him. John says that the maid who kept the door and let Peter in said, quote, are you not also one of this man's disciples? She says also because she knew that John was a disciple of Jesus. What did he do? Pull his cloak over his head more, avoid eye contact, make small talk with John, feign friendship with strangers? but the cold must have gotten the better of him because he decided to expose not only his hands but his face to the light of the fire. A charcoal fire it was, John tells us. He seems to tell us that because there will be another scene a few days later where Peter will have the chance one morning back by the Sea of Galilee up north to repent before a charcoal fire. But Peter was stupid. A servant girl recognized him, Luke says, as he was seated there in the firelight. She said not to him, but to the others, quote, This man was with him, end quote. No doubt a chill went up his spine. Everyone there knew who the him was she meant. He said, Woman, I don't know him. No one took any action. Some may have believed her. She persisted. She said a second time, quote, Again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. You can imagine his fear. If they believed her, they would forcibly drag him inside and present him to their masters for account. Quick, he had to deny who he was. So he did. Again, no one took any action. But maybe more believed her now. A third time he was confronted, not by the servant girl, but by a group. Matthew says, quote, After a little while, those standing there went up to him. So a small group had formed probably after having murmured to each other, compared notes, and realized the gal was right. And they called him out with evidence. Quote, Surely you're one of them, for your accent gives you away, says Luke. Quote, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean, says Matthew. Scholars aren't quite sure what sounds gave him away, like an Alabaman would be given away in Maine. It's based on the different Aramaic dialects they spoke in the different regions. They'd pronounce the same words differently. Peter was the Alabaman in Maine. Peter had two options. Fess up and submit to whatever happened next, deny Jesus emphatically, and hope they believed him. Apparently, bolting was not an option. So, Peter chose door number two. Matthew says, quote, Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Sure is a tame way of describing it. To say he cursed like a sailor wouldn't be far from the truth, because he was a fisherman after all. I'm sure it was R-rated. He had to be convincing. But just a couple of hours before, he was having such a nice time at dinner and was assuring Jesus that no, never would he ever fall away from him. Quote, even if all fall away on account of you, he said, I never will. But Jesus declined to let that nice moment pass. Quote, I tell you the truth, he answered. This very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. You can almost see the smirk on Jesus' face.
Now, two things of note happen in relation to this scene. First, a rooster crowed. Just in case you want to know when roosters crow in Jerusalem, you'd be pleased to know that they crow all the time. Yes, people have done studies about this, wondering if they can pinpoint the time of Jesus' trial with any greater precision. No, they can't. Damn critters crow at all hours of the night. So Jesus' prediction came true. Second, Luke says that just after the rooster crowed, the Lord turned and looked straight at him. And then Peter remembered the prediction. It's an odd description. What does he mean the Lord turned and looked straight at him? Where the heck was he? Well, he was being shuttled from Annas on one side of the building to the large room on the other side of the building where the Sanhedrin was gathering. But Mark adds another tiny detail that's interesting. And it's the kind of detail that readers of these accounts like to observe and reflect on, like I did with Malchus's right ear. There's a nice medieval painting of the denial of Peter. And it's done vertically with Jesus on the second story and Peter at the base of stairs in some courtyard. If you'd look at this, you'd ask, why'd the artist do that? If it on some narrow vertical door or window? No, it's because they took scripture very seriously. Mark is the only one who adds this solitary detail, quote, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the maids of the high priest came and, wait, 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 you got that? He says, quote, below in the courtyard. Below? What, was Caiaphas's house built on a terrace? How would you put a courtyard in it? So maybe, just maybe, Caiaphas lived in a two-story house. We need to wrap up poor Peter's story. When Peter heard the rooster crow, the gospels say, he went out and wept bitterly. His denial and his weeping have been the subject of an extraordinary amount of art and literary references over the centuries. And there's a reason for it. The same reason why this story has such prominence in the setting of Jesus' trial. It shows everything about life in a very short sequence. A testimony to love and devotion, a denial of that love and devotion, sincere repentance for that denial, and redemption following repentance. That's the essence of the Christian message. If it happened to Peter, it should happen to us. It's a sad story, but with a happy ending. Peter betrays Jesus, and in ways that St. Thomas Aquinas says is absolutely no different than how Judas betrayed Jesus. There were some early theologians who didn't like the thought that Peter, the first of the apostles and first leader of the church, could really have meant to betray Jesus. They were the same sort of defenders that Judas has to this day. Well, poor guy, he really didn't mean to do what he said. He was cold. He was under duress. He was really trying to save Jesus. He was, well, you get the picture. St. Thomas addresses the issue and says, indisputably, Peter betrayed Jesus in a manner worthy of instant damnation. The difference between Peter and Judas is that Peter repented while Judas despaired. Peter lived. Judas killed himself. There's no need to be like Judas because all of us are Judas at one time or another. There's no need to kill ourselves, people. We can repent and live. As St. Thomas says, quote, Our Lord permitted Peter to deny him because he wanted the very one who was to be the head of the entire church to be all the more compassionate to the weak and sinners, having experienced in himself his own weakness in the face of sin. That's the whole point of this story and setting. And it's so important that many scholars agree it causes Luke to become, as it were, distracted from his own account of the trial. As we'll see later on, Luke suggests that there was a second Jewish trial in the morning following the one that happened during the night. A lot of commentators have spent a lot of ink on his account, wondering if the rules of the Mishnah that refused to allow a trial at night were enforced at that time, and to get around the rule, the Sanhedrin met a second time to serve technical compliance. But I think the majority of scholars read Luke's account as a kind of hiccup in the story of Peter. Luke is earnest to tell you Peter's story, and in the process, he had to reintroduce the setting of the trial. And when he does so, it seems, seems as if he's describing a second trial. These scholars say we are not to take Luke literally here because Luke cares about Peter, not about the trial. And he doesn't actually say explicitly there was a second trial. 
And also, observers note, there'd be no reason why the Sanhedrin would feel some slavish need to comply with the rules detailed in the Mishnah, because if those rules even applied, the Sanhedrin felt no need whatsoever about breaking a whole host of other of those rules too. So Jesus is escorted past the courtyard, past Peter, a rooster crows, he turns and looks directly back at Peter from above, he sees Peter look up at him, and he turns back around and down the hall and into a large room on the other side of the house. It must have been large because it needed to fit at least 100 to 150 people, 70 members of the Sanhedrin plus the high priest plus the scribes plus the attendants plus room for witnesses. The Sanhedrin courtroom in Alexandria a few decades later was described in a fair amount of detail. The members sat in semicircles on raised seats so everyone could see each other. There was a seat in the center for the defendant, a real star chamber if there ever was one. On the right and left were clerks who took minutes. One clerk would take down the words of those in favor of conviction. The other would take down the words of those in favor of acquittal. Another memo to all you archaeologists. Please, oh please, try to find those minutes somewhere, maybe even some cave in the Qumran Desert. Behind the defendant were rows for witnesses. Three are said to be there. And then pupils of the scribes would sit on the floor. And again, forgive me for keep saying we don't know for sure what the arrangement was of the Sanhedrin that night in Caiaphas's house. But there's no reason why we can't think of them being in this general arrangement. Remember, we talked before about not being able to assume that the rules set by the Pharisees and as recorded in the Mishnah were enforced at the time the Sadducees were in charge. But there doesn't seem to be any reason unique to Pharisee thinking that would change the seating arrangement. I mean, the seating in Congress today is basically the same as it was during the time of the Whigs in 1850, so I don't think we should get terribly exercised about thinking that in this arrangement here, you had 70 members rimming the room, facing each other in a semicircle, with a chair for the high priest, Joseph Caiaphas, at the head of the room, and with a seat smack dab in the middle for Jesus, or maybe they gave him no seat and insisted he stand and get tired and show weakness they could pounce on. And near him would be dutiful scribes transcribing the event, and pupils of the scribes sitting, watching, learning. And then, on the side of the room opposite Caiaphas's seat, would be seats for witnesses. You have to wonder if there actually were witnesses seated, or whether they were out in the hall rehearsing their testimony, being coached about what to say or not to say. And I'm sure a privileged few spectators got seats, or stood along the walls, or peered in from outside the room, pressing to see the spectacle. All foes? Any friends? Peter left. Was John still around? Well, we get the scant details of the trial from someone. Inside traitors to the Sanhedrin cause? A friend of the defendant? A foe who later became a friend of the defendant? A post-mortem friend, shall we say? Who knows? We know none of the disciples were there because they had all skedaddled, as they say, after the skirmish in Gethsemane. And it seems unlikely they snuck back to the trial because they spent the next two days in fear of their lives behind locked doors in the same room where they had dinner a few hours before. All except John, we can say. Did he leave the courtyard with Peter? Did he stay to watch events unfold? He might have. He certainly had no fear about standing by the cross at Calvary. And he had escorted Jesus' mother there, too. Maybe she was at the trial. If she could have, she would have. She was afraid of nothing. In any case, each of the four gospel writers records some detail about what happened at the trial. So somebody was there who saw it and talked about it. And if John did stay and leave Peter to weep, it's to John's additional credit that he suffered Peter's betrayal and rejoiced in Peter's later repentance. For the Acts of the Apostles, there often links the two of them together, such as going up to the temple at the hour of prayer in Acts chapter 3 and being sent by the Apostles to Samaria together in Acts chapter 8. Should we talk about who we know who was there or who was likely there? I think it's interesting. Matthew and Mark put it this way. They say, quote, all the priests, all the scribes, and the elders were there. There's that word, all. 
And some literalist likes to say, like my friends from Texas say, just what part of all do you not understand? But scholars say, be careful, you Texans. Just because he says all doesn't mean he means all. If Matthew's trying to show that the entire leadership of the Jews was arrayed against Jesus, just as they were so arrayed against the prophets of old, then he really doesn't mean all as in every single one of them. He means collectively. So we can start with the priests, because we actually have some names to go with that class. First, there's Joseph Caiaphas. He was high priest that year, says John. That reference is a little strange, because high priests were at one point appointed for life. As the book of Exodus records, God appointed Aaron as high priest. Leviticus says that the line of succession would come through his sons and was to stay in his family. After the Babylonian exile, civil authorities started making the appointments, and we saw Herod do that with relish. Before the exile, appointments were for life. After the exile, not so. When the Roman procurator Gratus deposed Annas from the position of high priest in 15 AD, Annas must have schemed to get that power back. And he found a likely figure in Joseph Caiaphas, who must have been scheming to get that power. Caiaphas courted Annas's daughter and married her, although we probably shouldn't think this was an arrangement of love. Family dynasties were made through careful selection of the families in those dynasties, and Joe Caiaphas must have had something in his person or family background that would have impressed Annas enough to let him marry his daughter, join his dynasty, and exercise power through him, and live in the same house with him. So three years after Annas gets sacked by Procurator Gratus, and four appointments and three years later, Caiaphas gets appointed high priest by the Procurator Gratus. I should mention that the first of those one-year interim appointments was to a fellow named Ishmael I, son of Fiabi. Josephus says he was a most unpopular high priest, having been, quote, the handsomest man of his time, whose effeminate love of luxury was the scandal of the age. He lasted a year and was sacked. He was probably at Jesus' trial. The second of those one-year interim appointments between Annas and Caiaphas was the oldest of Annas's five sons, Eleazar ben Annas. We don't have any details on him that I'm aware of, except that he only lasted a year, which raises issues about his suitability or competency or both. But he was probably at Jesus' trial, too. Then there's my favorite, Simon son of Kamathos. He lasted for less than a year, between 17 and 18 AD. There's a Talmudic story about him that he was subject to ridicule because something ridiculous happened to him. He was getting ready to preside over the High Holy Days and the Feast of the Atonement, when, as we saw, all the eyes of Israel would be on him. It's hard to find a parallel in modern times, but it'd be something like presiding over opening day ceremonies for the Olympics, but even more so. But an unfortunate thing happened to poor Simon. In the week preceding the ceremony, an Arab spit on him and rendered him unclean, and he had to hand the duties over to his brother. And then he got sacked, and Caiaphas replaced him. But he too was probably at Jesus' trial. Still paranoid, some Arab might spit on him again. Then there was Simon's brother. We don't know his name, but he was the one deputized to preside over the feast and his brother's disability. Because he got to act as a high priest, he too may have been deemed worthy to have had a seat on the Sanhedrin. If so, he would have been at Jesus' trial. Then there was the commander of the temple guard. He would assist the high priest at solemn public ceremonies. His position was chosen from the nearest relative of the high priest. That could have been Caiaphas's brother-in-law, Jonathan, the second son of Annas. He took over Caiaphas' position in 36 AD, well after this trial. But because he was temple commander at the time, would likely have been a member of the Sanhedrin and probably was at Jesus' trial too. He later came to a bad end as he crossed paths with the procurator Antonius Felix, who had him assassinated. Next, there was the steward of the temple. That was a high position that could have compelled a seat on the Sanhedrin. We don't know who that fellow was in Jesus' time. And after the steward came the temple treasurers. Two of Annas's other sons appear to have held these same positions at around the time of Jesus' trial because they were later appointed high priests, Theophilus and Matthias. What about any high priest before Annas? Don't know. There are three or four before him going back to 5 BC. 
If they lived into their 60s, 70s, or 80s, they could have been there too. But we won't dwell on them here because they had various problems that might otherwise eliminate them as candidates, even assuming they did survive, which we simply don't know. So there you go. Ten priests who may have been there. Annas, Joseph Caiaphas, Ishmael, Eleazar, Simon, Simon's brother, Jonathan, Theophilus, Matthias, and the guy who was the steward of the temple. Now, apart from the priests, you had the elders there. One we know a bit about, Joseph of Arimathea. Matthew calls him a rich man when it describes him as one who went to fetch Jesus' burial items. Mark says he was, quote, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, end quote. John goes a step further and says he was, quote, a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one, because of his fear of the Jews, end quote, when recounting how he went to see Pilate to get custody of Jesus' body so he could bury Jesus in his own tomb. Not many people would get to see Pilate about anything, and Arimathea was one of them. His name is so familiar that everyone assumes they know where Arimathea actually was. Actually, we don't. Historians haven't been able to agree on where the heck Arimathea was. He's one of those signposts to lost history that remains lost. Luke tells us it was in Judea, but that's like saying it was in Southern California. Do we think that a thousand years from now, people will know where Chatsworth and Reseda were? If there were a Joseph of Encino, would that help anyone 2,000 years from now? I don't know. There are a whole host of legends about Joseph I won't go into, including his part in the Arthurian legend, where he was seen as the first keeper of the Holy Grail. And his name pops up in all kinds of stories that appear in the 4th century, works that we mentioned at the outset, the Gospel of Nicodemus, the Acts of Pilate, which the early church said were unworthy of credence. But there's a tradition that recognizes him as a saint, and the tradition of sainthood is very different from the tradition of anecdotes. His feast day is August 31st. So Joseph of Arimathea was also there at Jesus' trial, and so were the scribes. Scribes weren't always members of the Sanhedrin. It wasn't until 76 BC that they started getting appointed there, which again shows that they were not exactly scrivener copyists, but something of a little higher stature. We know a couple of them who were there that night, at least one anyhow, a fellow named Nicodemus. John is the one who gives us details about him. He was the one who visits Jesus at night to discuss Jesus' teaching, and Jesus expresses surprise that a teacher of Israel cannot understand the concept of being born again. He was the one who reminded his colleagues in the Sanhedrin that the law requires that a person be heard before being judged. And he appears after Jesus' crucifixion to provide embalming spices and to help Arimathea prepare Jesus' body for burial. Indeed, he didn't just grab a couple of bottles of embalming fluid. He bought about 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes that were exorbitantly expensive and consistent with the royal burial. Josephus records a touching account about a Nicodemus Ben-Gurion, who was a wealthy man during the siege of Jerusalem, who spent and lost his entire fortune caring for the people under siege. What made it sadder is that he lost most of his fortune at the hands of Jewish zealots, who torched up his store of provisions he had saved for the use of the needy there, because he dared to try to broker peace with the Roman emperor Vespasian. Some think it was the same Nicodemus in John's Gospel. Could have been him. Could have been someone else. Sure seems consistent with John's character, who gave up his own tomb for a local convict. And lastly, there's another fellow teacher we know by name who was probably there. We don't know for sure that he was. Gamaliel. A student by the name of Saul of Tarsus studied under him, says Acts chapter 22. He was the one who later on appears in the Acts of the Apostles as the one who, not a Christian, still came to the defense of the apostles and says, in effect, quote, if what they are doing is of God's will, then leave them alone, end quote. So you've got a cast of characters there assembled in the room that night, and I'd like to imagine which among them had brushed up against Jesus in times past. It was just a scant 20 years earlier when a precocious 12-year-old boy showed up at the temple one day without his parents and was asking the most remarkable question of all the sages there. Was this the same lad? Oh my, the talk behind the scenes must have been fascinating. Too big for his britches. Who does he think he is? 
He's gone way over the line. I wonder if there was another teenager hanging around the temple at the time, checking out the priest's vestments in the back and uh, inquiring about Annas' daughter in the front, Caiaphas. We don't really know anything about Caiaphas's age like we do about his father-in-law, who was deposed at the age of 36 to 37. Annas had five sons, but we don't know where his daughter fit in with them. The oldest? Maybe. Let's say Annas married when he was 18. He could have an 18-year-old daughter by age 36, one who would marry Caiaphas and see him appointed her dad's successor three years later when she was, say, 21. Add about a dozen years to get us to the time of Jesus' trial, and she would be 33. Then take off about 20 years to get us to a 12-year-old Jesus, and oh my, you get a 12-year-old girl maybe hanging around the temple then too. Maybe she was younger. I don't know. One of the Levitical requirements of being high priest is that you had to marry an Israelite virgin, and someone as ambitious as Caiaphas wouldn't want to take any chances. Caiaphas was presumably older, but how much older? Pure speculation. But not that much speculation to wonder whether he had heard about or whether he had seen everything in action. This new boy wonder when he had designs on being high priest. Think he kept an eye on him growing up, one teenager to another, hearing story after story about him, a pretender to his own throne? He was holy. He was high priest. How dare other people saw this other punk was holy. He was not high priest. He was not even from priestly lineage. He wasn't wealthy. He was a tradesman. He was from Nazareth. Like people used to say, quote, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Damn that guy, he must have thought. Yeah, he saw him in the temple about 21 years ago. For three damn days he saw him. He'd rue the day they'd ever cross paths again. Maybe. And Caiaphas wasn't likely the only one in the room that night that had crossed paths with this 12-year-old back then. Some of them may have been the very ones answering his questions and being astounded at his answers. Maybe. And some of them, those venerable elders who were up past their bedtime that night, may have been there some 33 years before. I remember that time when old Simeon, whom they all recognized as a holy man of God, had said that God had revealed to him that he would not die until his eyes laid sight on the Messiah, and who told him about this extraordinary feeling that came over him one day in the temple when he saw a young couple present their little baby in the temple, and that he knew, because God had so revealed it to him then and there, that this 40-day-old infant was, in fact, the Messiah who would bring salvation to Israel. Did any of them remember that event and wonder if this was the same infant? Did any of them have a great aunt or kinswoman, Anna by name, who was there in the temple that day too? An 84-year-old woman who recognized this tiny baby as the Messiah and who, quote, began to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem? Even if they didn't know either Simeon or Anna, don't you think they would have heard about this commotion? Were any of them way back then summoned to Herod's palace one day to advise Herod on where the scriptures said the Messiah was to be born? Were any of them the ones who told him that it would be in Bethlehem? Did any of them meet with any of those sages from the east who came to pay homage to the new king? Did they hear the cry from Bethlehem a short time later when Herod had all infants under age two put to the sword? And now they have a guy on trial before them who's 33 years old, who was born in Bethlehem, who may have been the one old Simeon and Anna raved about, and who had astounded them in the temple 12 years later. Do you think that perhaps some of these elders sitting there that night thought about that? That they were maybe, just maybe, a little bit nervous, ready to get this whole thing over as quickly as possible? And they must have thought about this as they were taking their seats, getting a quiet briefing on the news of the night from one to another and their servants, that this younger fellow had just been examined by Annas and he didn't crack. Wow, everyone cracks under Annas. Will he crack under us? What if he doesn't? In our next session, we'll see what happens to Jesus when he's brought before the Sanhedrin. How did his trial proceed? Where did it proceed? What did they convict him of? Was the conviction just? How would you have voted? What was their plan for proceeding further? Please join us for Lecture 4, The Jewish Trial.